0: If you have your Bible, let's turn together to Romans chapter 9, as we're going to keep going through Romans, and this is where we are, Romans 9. Um, We're going to look, starting in verse 19 for today's sermon, but I'm going to start reading one verse back at verse 18, just so we remember what it is that he's talking about with God's sovereignty, even over man's salvation. So it says in Romans 9, verse 18, So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. And then our passage for today, You will save to me then. Why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles? You might already know, if you are a believer in Christ... And especially if you've been around here for a while, you might already know what your life is supposed to be all about. What is the point of life? Well, the answer is the glory of God. I think that the Westminster Divines did a good job summing up what is the point of life in the very first uh, question and answer in the Westminster Shorter Catechism, where it says that the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Just one example of a Bible passage that shows us that is in 1 Corinthians 10.31. So it says, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So that's what God has created us for. That's what God created you for personally. Maybe you don't know that or maybe you just need a reminder of that today, that that's why you're here. That's why you exist. The chief end of you, O man is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. But sometimes we would also maybe not recognize what is the chief end of God. The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Well, what's God all about? Is He all about glorifying man? No, I would say that the chief end of God is also to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. Now, why do I say that? Well, it's because it's all over the Bible. Let me give you some examples. Isaiah 42, verse 8, he says, I am the Lord, that is my name, my glory I give to no other. Or Isaiah 48, verse 11, where he's talking about saving people, why does he do it? He says, for my own sake, for my own sake I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. Or in Philippians 2, verses 9 through 11, where he's talking about God the Father sending God the Son, Jesus Christ, and what is the goal, what's all this going to wrap up and doing? It says, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father." You hear that, that's just a few places where we could go, but if you start opening your eyes and and looking for this, you'll see it all over the Scriptures that God is all about the glory of God. And that sounds a little bit weird to us, because I'm not supposed to be all about the glory of me, you're not supposed to be all about the glory of you, so why would God be all about the glory of God? Well, it's because He's God, and we're not. If we were to be all about the glory of anything other than God, we would have a misplaced worship. And if God were to be about the glory of anything other than God, then God would have a misplaced mindset and a misplaced worship in a way. It's because of this, 1 Peter 4.11, To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. It's because he is the glorious one. Glory and dominion actually do belong to him. And if he were to be about the glory of anything else, he would be in the wrong. But he is about his own glory. As it's going to sum up at the end of Romans 11, this whole section of Romans runs from 9 through 11. In the end of it, it's going to say, from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. And that's what we have here is we have the glory of God on display in his salvation of man and also in his decision not to save everyone, which is a hard thing. We're, we're confronted today with a hard subject in the scriptures. We, we've been looking at it through Romans 9 and going through it and seeing for these past three weeks now what it tells us about what's called the doctrine of election. It said back in verse 11 that God's decision to save some and not others, and he's talking specifically there out of the people of Israel, the Jewish people. It says it's so that God's purpose of election might continue. But why is this? Why is it that God has chosen to have mercy on some and not on others? Why does it not depend on human will, but on God's free will? Why does he have mercy on whom he wills, and why does he harden whom he wills? That's a hard question, but the answer is in today's text. And the answer is for his glory. All of this is about the glory of God. The way that he puts it in Revelation is, I am the alpha and the Omega. I am the beginning and the end. He is the one who started it all, and he is the point of it all. All of it is for his glory, including the very difficult subject to think about, the very difficult subject for us to wrap our minds around, which is, why does God create some people who will be destroyed for all eternity, who will suffer conscious eternal torment under his hand for their sins? That is a hard question, but the answer is wrapped up here in this text to say it is for his glory. It's to demonstrate his glory. It's that God is sovereign in all of this, and God is sovereign for his glory. You could say here that we see what is the, I uh, sometimes call them the five solas of the Reformation or the five onlys of the Reformation, that we've been talking uh, as we go through the book of Romans about how man can be saved from his sins according to what it says here in the Scripture alone as our final source of authority, that, that we are saved by his grace alone through faith alone, in Christ alone, and especially we'll see today for the glory of God alone, not for our own glory, but for his glory. Now, when we start talking about the issue of election, of God deciding who it is that he's going to save, we've already said that there's some natural objections that start to well up in human minds Paul, it seems, has encountered a lot of these objections throughout the course of his ministry. And so he's, he's taken uh, a second here, and these, these, the paragraph that we went through last time that started in verse 14 and the paragraph that we're going through today in verse 19 to, to just take an aside and say, I know you're going to have objections to this because whenever I talk about this, people have objections to this. That's what I think Paul is, is is doing here, is saying, I know the kinds of stuff that comes up when I say this, and let me just go on and address it right now. One of those objections that we saw last week was, doesn't that mean that God is unjust? Isn't he unfair? Well, he answered that by saying, he's the one who has the authority to punish sin. He's not unfair to leave people in their sin And then also to show mercy to some. It's up to him to do that. But the objection today is this. Why does he still find fault for who can resist his will? Now remember the verse that came right before it. He has mercy on whomever he wills. And he hardens whomever he wills. So, so, so often human reason will jump in and say... Well, it's all about human free will. God has put this out there out of total love equally toward every single person, and boy, wouldn't they just by their free will please take it, and he is just this God who's pretty strong Strong enough to offer salvation, but not strong enough to actually make it happen. And he's just saying, please, please, by your free will, won't you do it? And and the Bible has just taught us it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. It's God's free will. God has mercy on whom he wills, and he hardens whom he wills. And when someone wills to come to Christ, it's because God first willed for them to come to Christ. So when someone loves God, it's because he first loved us. That's what he's just taught, but that brings an objection. The objection is, why does he still find fault? This is number one on the back of your bulletin, by the way. I hope you know to look there. There's an outline there. Man's objection to God's sovereignty, why does he still find fault? I should just say what God's sovereignty is, by the way, because this is teaching God's sovereignty in salvation. Well, God's sovereignty is the fact that God is Lord over everything. That God is the one who, through the way that he has created everything and the way that he exercises his ongoing direction of everything, that's called his creation and his providence, that he carries out his plans. Another word for his plans is his decrees. He has decided from eternity past how things are going to go. And he carries it out in his works of creation and in his works of providence. He makes sure that things happen according to plan. But when man hears that, and when I say man, I'm not saying those people over there. I'm saying we see it's a tendency in our own hearts to say, how does this work? Why does he still find fault? Who can resist his will? Here's the real question that's being raised there is, If God is completely sovereign over everything, then how can God still hold us responsible? How can he still find fault? How how is it that if God has planned out meticulously everything from the beginning to the end, how can he then say, you are under punishment for doing what I planned for you to do? That's the question. And it does present a logical quandary for us. How does this work? How can it be that God is completely sovereign and that man is completely responsible? Well, we need to know that the Bible teaches two things. And both of these things are true because the Bible teaches them. It teaches, first of all, that God is all the way sovereign over everything. I'll just give you an example Psalm 135, verse 6. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and on earth, in the seas and all deeps. In case you were wondering, does he just do what he wants in heaven and then leave earth to do what it wants? No, he says in heaven and on the earth. He even goes down into the depths of the sea and says whatever is happening with those weird little fish down at the bottom that nobody's ever seen before, that's part of his sovereignty too. Every bit of it, everywhere. So that's one thing that the Bible teaches very clearly. God is all the way sovereign over everything, and that includes us. There's a second thing that the Bible teaches, which is that God is in no way to be blamed for evil. God is in no way to be blamed for evil. It says in Genesis 18, 25, "...shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just?" There will be absolutely no bit ounce of evil that on the last day that anyone can look at God and say, that was your fault, sovereign God. No. The God of the earth, the judge of all the earth, will do what is right. He will do what is just. Where that leaves us is the the reality that God has both planned out how everything will go, And man is completely responsible for his sin. And Satan and his demons are completely responsible for their sin. We're getting here at some of the most difficult philosophical, logical questions of the Christian faith. How can God be all good, all loving, and all powerful, and evil exists? Well, in some ways, that's something that is just going to make our brains explode the more we think about it. I'm not telling you not to think about it. If you want to go and read some of the excellent books that have been written on that subject and set your mind deeply on that subject as they point you to the Scriptures, then that's that's a good thing to do, but you just need to know up front that, that our basic task is not to say, I'm going to wait until my reason allows for what the Bible says, and then I will accept what the Bible says. No, what we need to do is we need to say what the Bible says is true. And if my reason doesn't fit what the Bible says, it's my reason that's wrong. It's my logic that is flawed if it doesn't match up with the truths that the Scripture teaches. And here are two truths that the Scripture teaches. God is completely sovereign, and he is in no way responsible for evil. He is not the one to be blamed. Man is responsible for his own sin. Let me just read you a couple of places where those two concepts come together. Genesis 50 verse 20. It says, as for you, this is talking, this is Joseph talking to his brothers. Remember, they had thrown him in a pit and left him, uh, well, they sold, thrown him in a pit and then sold him to, uh, the Egyptians, pretended that he had been murdered. Um, this, this was this incredibly sinful action that they had done toward Joseph. But Joseph says, as for you, brothers, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today they are completely responsible for their evil actions and it was within the plan of god to do this sovereign thing you have the, the greatest example is the greatest evil that has ever been committed which is the crucifixion of the lord of glory the murder of god the son jesus christ but it says about that in acts 4:27 In a prayer that the early church raises up to God, For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. You hear that? God was completely sovereign over that. And they are completely responsible for killing the Lord of glory. By the way, you and I are responsible for it as well because of our sin that put him there. So we need to know that. Man has this objection that naturally comes up. God ought not to find fault. God ought not to hold us responsible for sin if he is the one whose will will be done. But here's the answer. Here's God's answer. But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? You hear that? Now, as I said, you can spend years and years trying to work out the logic of how exactly all of this goes together. You can, and if God calls you to do it, then by all means do. You can become a professor of Christian philosophy, teaching at a seminary level, and working out all of these things, and that is a beneficial thing for the church if, if that's what God calls you to do. But you have to have the starting point of, of, of Romans 9.20 in all of this. Who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? That has to be our starting point. God is God. We are man, and it's not our place to answer back to God. It's not our place to say, God, you shouldn't have done things this way. You shouldn't have been sovereign over everything, because that presents us with conundrums. No, that's not our place. Our place is to say, our God is in the heavens, and he does all that he pleases. Hallelujah. He is God. We are not. We need to submit ourselves under what he has said about himself and about us and about his plans and about sin and righteousness and judgment. We submit ourselves to it. That's the main answer. That's the first answer that he gives is, who do you think you are to talk back to God? He puts us in our place. A great saying that I know you've heard before, the Bible said it, I believe it, that settles it. Does that mean that you can't do any further study, that you don't need to think more deeply? Of course not, but what, it has to be our starting place. Don't answer back to God. Accept what he has said. And then God goes on and he elaborates on that by giving this analogy that he's the potter and we are the clay. If you look at verse 20, about halfway through that verse, it says, will, will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? That's funny. I like that. It's like you, you, you've got this this guy sitting down with, with a lump of clay, and, and he's going to make some, some different kinds of things that would go on a table. And the first thing that he makes out of the clay is an ashtray. And you can just imagine the clay as it gets formed into an ashtray, having little eyes that pop open and a mouth that pops open and it looks up at the guy who's who's making it and says, no, you shouldn't have made me an ashtray. I know you're going to make a flower vase. You should have made me a flower vase and not an ashtray. Uh, guys, the clay doesn't have the right to say that to the potter. You, you can't do that. And, and then he goes on and he says in verse 22, or no, verse 21, has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use, and another vessel for dishonorable use. Now, if we're talking about the the the, the picture of a potter with clay, and honorable use and dishonorable use, it, it, it gets to some. I mean, it's just gross stuff, all right. So, so in in one sense, you, you could have the the clay made into an honorable vessel. It could be something like the, the most beautiful cup in the house, uh, the, the cup that they only get out when company comes over, and, and it sits at the, the head of the table, and the honored guest gets to drink out of this special cup. But at the same time, when it says a vessel, a vessel of dishonorable use, I mean, frankly, what that's talking about is a chamber pot, and, and those of you who, kids, if you don't know what a chamber pot is, you just need to know that we haven't always had bathrooms like we have today. That is a modern invention, and they had to have something before. They had to have vessels for dishonorable use, and that's what that's talking about. But what it says here is it's not saying that, don't take that analogy too far in what he's talking about with those that God would and wouldn't save, but he's just saying God has the right to take one lump of clay and to make, and to have, Different uses out of it. God has the right in humanity to have different uses for His glory for different people. God has that right. He's using here a a metaphor that comes out of the Old Testament prophets, especially Isaiah and Jeremiah. This idea of, of the potter and the clay. In Isaiah twenty nine, sixteen it says, Shall the potter be regarded as the clay that the thing made should say of its maker, He did not make me, or the thing formed say of him who formed it, he has no understanding. Or in Isaiah forty five, nine, Woe to him who strives with him who formed him. A pot among earthen pots, does the clay say to him who forms it, What are you making? Or Your work has no handles. That's kind of funny. You should have put a handle on me. That's kind of a general idea each one of us is clay in the potter's hands. He can do with us as he wishes and we have no right to look at God and say you should have done it differently. But he also talks about this in terms of Israel. And just keep in mind in in Romans 9 we're dealing here he, he, we're dealing here not just with the doctrine of election but also the question of Why is it that so few people, especially in Paul's day, so few people from among the Jewish people had embraced the Jewish Messiah? Why were so many at that moment headed toward an eternity in hell by rejecting the Savior, Jesus Christ? Why would that be the case among this people that we know throughout the Old Testament as God's chosen people? Well, it says this in Jeremiah 18... Verse one, the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord, arise and go down to the potter's house, and there I will let you hear my words. So I went down to the potter's house, and there he was working with, at his wheel. And the vessels he was making of clay, or the vessel he was making of clay was spoiled in the potter's hand. And he reworked it into another vessel, as it seemed good to the potter to do. Then the word of the Lord came to me, O house of Israel, can I not do with you as this potter has done declares the Lord Behold like the clay in the potter's hand so are you in my hand O house of Israel You see Romans 9 is reminding us here that the one on the one's hand that that God is able from anyone in all of humanity to save or to condemn but also reminding us that God has said even back in the Old Testament that he has that right within Israel as well, that being one who was born of that people does not make someone eternally saved, but God has the right to rework the clay as he sees fit. And who are you, O man, to answer back to God? That's part of what he's getting across. I'm going to hold off on saying as much as I would really like to right now about the Gentiles and Israel because that really kind of comes in the next passage. And it comes even more clearly when we get to Romans chapter 11 about about this olive tree and being grafted into the olive tree and what that looks like to be the Israel of God, the believing church together now, believing in the true Israel, Jesus Christ, who is the vine and we are the branches. I guess I did say more about it, didn't I? But I'm going to hold off on that. Because we want to just think here about the hard question that he's raising of how is it that God could do this, this act of saving some, condemning others, and do it all for his glory. It says, as he said in in verse 21, that some, he, he has the right to make one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use. I just want to give you a preview of what's coming in the next verses. When he says a vessel for honorable use, in verse 23, he clarifies that what he's talking about here is vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. When well, he says, I am talking about human beings whom I would save from their sins and, and give them the mercy and grace of forgiveness and justification, eternal life. That's what he's talking about with these vessels of mercy, these these vessels for honorable use. But back in verse 22, when he's talking about the vessels for dishonorable use, he clarifies that by saying that they are vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. That's the hard thing for us, isn't it? That's the hard thing for us to wrap our minds around. That's the thing, even as I was reading commentaries about this passage, that there's all kinds of people, even scholars, who try to get around what it's saying here. And yet it says what it says. It says what it says. It it says that God has prepared some vessels, some human beings, for the purpose of eternal destruction. Who are you, O man, to answer back to God? I get not liking that. We will like it in eternity, but I get that being a hard teaching. But it's what the Bible says. This is not the only place the Bible says it either. In Proverbs 16, verse 4, it says, The Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked for the day of trouble. God has the right to do that. Before we keep going, I just want to mention here that these vessels for honorable use and vessels for dishonorable use we ought not to start thinking that what the Bible is saying is that God made some people inherently better than other people. That's one way that you could take this, but you can't take it that way if you're actually reading the entire book of Romans, can you? He's not saying here that some people just came out of their mother's wombs as good people because God had formed them into vessels of honor. That's not it at all. Vessels of honor are vessels of mercy. You hear that? He's not saying they were inherently better. It's saying that he prepared them to receive his mercy, to be forgiven of their sin that had made them, according to Ephesians 2, 3, and when I say them, I mean me and I mean you, it had made us by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That's what he says. So when he says vessels of honor, we're not saying here that the elect are chosen by God because God said, oh, I made that one so good. I'm going to choose that one. No, all of us are fallen in our sin, but some of us, by God's grace, he has prepared from before the foundation of the world to show us mercy and to bring us to glory and to, 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 by his grace alone, not by our merit, not by our works, not by anything in us, but by his grace to let us be those chosen ones who would receive forgiveness and eternal life. And I do want to ask you, do you you want to be a vessel of honor? Do you want to be a vessel of honor? Well, here's what it says in 2 Timothy 2 verse 20. In a great house there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use and some for dishonorable use. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. So flee youthful youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. So let me say this, it is not up to us as man to know who it is that God has eternally decreed for salvation or for condemnation. But what we have from our perspective is a command from God, would you like to be a vessel for honorable use? Come here. Come, have faith in Jesus. Be among those who call upon the Lord from a pure heart and pursue righteousness and faith and love and peace. Pursue Jesus in faith. Pursue holiness. That's what it looks like when one of these vessels of mercy has received mercy. And so if you want to know that you are a vessel for honorable use, then do what it says. Go away from what is dishonorable. That means repent of your sin and turn to Jesus in faith and pursue him. And that's what it says in Second Timothy. It looks like to be a vessel for honorable use. So I I don't want us to be those who would come away from a passage like this and say, nothing matters. God's already decided who's going where. Nothing matters. That's just not the way that God tells us to go about these things. But he also does tell us he had a plan for each and every individual from before the foundation of the world. And why does he even tell us that? Some would wonder that. Why doesn't he just keep us in the dark about that? And just leave us with the instructions of what we're supposed to do. Well, here's the answer. It's because it's all for His glory. He wants us to know this for His praise, for His glory. It says in verse 22 that God's glory is going to be displayed in His justice for the reprobate. I've said, I think both of the last two sermons, something like this, and and this is where I'm getting this from, is these verses, that God is going to receive eternal glory for every single individual human of all time. For those who stay in their sin and suffer in the lake of fire for all eternity, God is going to be glorified for his glorious justice displayed. And for us, who've come by God's grace to faith in Jesus, we are going to be glorified together with Jesus. We're going to share in his glory, as it says in verse 23, that he prepared us beforehand for glory. And it's going to be ultimately for the display of his glory because of grace. So let me just say that more plainly. God is going to be glorified for his justice to those who are eternally punished. And God is going to be glorified for his grace to those who are eternally saved. But God is going to get the glory in all of it. And what it says in verse 22, I said that his glory is going to be displayed in his justice for the reprobate. Reprobate, what does that mean? Well, it's... it's It means not chosen. It means made, as it says here, for for destruction. A vessel of wrath prepared for destruction. The opposite of retrobate is elect, but we have here in verse 22, I've got to say Romans 9.22 is one of the hardest verses in the Bible. But who are you, O man, to talk back to God? So let's listen to it. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? I want to think first of all about the word patience there. It says he has endured with much patience. That's a reminder that God does not, God, God is not obligated to let us keep on living. God is not obligated to give us any good thing, but God is patient with us. In fact, this is part of the way that God described his own character. When he announced his name and his character to Moses, he said that he is the Lord, a God slow to anger. I don't know if you've ever thought about that. I, I don't know about you. Occasionally, I can be quick to anger. right? Especially, especially if, it's a, if it's a small child who just very directly tries. (laughs) And boy, what a humbling thing to remember. The God of all the universe who perfectly hates sin, who has no such thing as unrighteous anger, He's slow to anger. And even with these vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, even with the reprobate, even with those who will not be saved, who are going to be left in their sin for all eternity... God is slow to anger. He has endured with much patience vessels of wrath. He said about this back in Romans chapter 2, verse 4, "Or Do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? He says, look, part of God's patience toward those who are lost in their sin is that there is a genuine offer of salvation. There's a genuine offer of the gospel. And he is patient. We're to count the patience of the Lord as salvation, it says in 2 Peter 3.15. It says in 1 Peter 3.20 that God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared. That there was an opportunity for those who would not come in to come in. He was patient. He was patient. But we need to know, too, that God is not obligated to extend his patience forever. And eventually, God's patience runs out. It says, right after he says that we should count the patience and the kindness of God as as a merciful thing to lead you to repentance, in verse 5 of Romans chapter 2, he says, but because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. I've got to say this. If you're an unbeliever sitting here right now, maybe you're the children of believers that drug you here. Maybe there's some other circumstances. God is extending his message of grace to you. He has been patient with you day after day, month after month, year after year but he doesn't have to keep being patient. Listen to his voice today. Today is the day of salvation. Let his patience be to you. Kindness unto salvation. Don't wait another day because eventually God's patience will run out. Don't let that happen. Come to Jesus. Trust in Jesus. Turn from your sin believe in him, let yourself be cleansed from the dishonorable stuff, and come to Jesus and be a vessel for honorable use. But his patience will run out. That's why Jesus said this in John twelve thirty five. The, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest the darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going, so while you have the light, believe in the light." that you may become sons of light. It says, though, that there are vessels of wrath that are prepared for destruction. Same thing is taught in, in 1 Peter 2.8, where it says they stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. You hear that? It said that God destined some for destruction. Or in 2 Peter 2.3, their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not is not asleep. He says it is from long ago. Another way to put that is from before the foundation of the world. Or in Jude verse 4, it says that there are some who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Again, this is a hard thing for us to wrap our minds around. And there are theologians who dedicate their lives to trying to figure out what is the logical order of God's decrees in these things. Did did God decree to condemn the reprobate before he made logically the decree for sin to come into the world? Did God decree that afterward? Is God uh, actively sending them to condemnation or is he passively allowing them to remain in their sin? Those, I have to say, are just very difficult things to work out. And every time I read about those things and I think I'm going to come to a solid position right now, they all have different definitions than the last thing I read, and that just tells you that's a hard thing to wrap our minds around. But who are you, O man, to talk back to God? And he said right here that there are those that he has destined for destruction. Why has he done it, though? This is the thing that he put it here for. This is the reason why he tells us this is because this is the reason why he does this, is that it's for his glory. I'm kind of working backwards through verse 22, so look at the beginning of verse 22. God desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power. It says that's why he's endured with much patience vessels of wrath, prepared for destruction. It's going to give God glory, because God will show his wrath. We may not like the idea of God having wrath, because when we have wrath, it's almost always sinful. <laughs> almost always sinful. It's so close to, alm- it's so close to always sinful that, that the Bible even says when it's not sinful, still don't let the sun go down on your anger. But God's righteous anger is righteous. It, it says in James 1.20, the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. You know, sometimes we get angry because we want the right thing to be done. But our anger doesn't produce righteousness. But do you know what's built into that? God's anger does. God's anger does produce righteousness. He always has the right outcome. And that's going to be displayed for all eternity for those who are suffering the righteous punishment for their sin. Or another verse, Romans 1.18, "...for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And it says that he's going he's to show his wrath. It says that he's going to make known his power. Remember how he talked about that with Pharaoh? That He said that he raised up Pharaoh so that he could show his power over Pharaoh in destroying Pharaoh? Well, there's, there's some things that show us this about all of the, the, the wicked in eternity as well. Isaiah sixty six twenty two. It says as the new heavens and the new earth that I make shall remain before me says the Lord so shall your offspring and your name remain and from new moon to new moon and from sabbath to sabbath all flesh shall come and worship before me declares the Lord and they shall go out and look on the dead bodies of the men who have rebelled against me for their worm shall not die their fire shall not be quenched and they shall be an abhorrence to all flesh Sometimes you read that and you say, why did the book of Isaiah end up like that? Shouldn't it have had a happier note at the end? You know what it's saying? It's saying that for all eternity, we will have no doubt that God was just and right in showing his power. We will have no doubt about it. We will have no mixture in eternity of a feeling of maybe that's not what really should have happened. It says the same thing in Revelation 19. I know there's all kinds of ways of interpreting this, but I think it's just talking. I won't get into it, but just listen. Just listen. After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. His power will be displayed, for his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. And once more they cried out, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. It is hard to wrap our minds around, and yet the Bible says it, that we will give glory to God for all eternity, for all of his righteous judgments. It's for his glory. Christian, I want you to look at these two truths that are both here in Romans 9. One is the one that we just looked at, and the other one is is verses 1 and 2. He says, I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. He's talking about his anguish over those who don't believe. Remember this. It is normal. It is good. It is biblical in this life to have a holy anguish when we look at those who don't yet believe the gospel and when we consider what could be their eternal end it's good to have a burden for the lost in your heart even as at the same time we obey the command to rejoice always because we know the joy that Christ has brought us we Mixed in with it, just like Paul did, we can have an anguish for the lost. But know this also, that in eternity you will have no anguish. You will have no anguish. Every bit of sadness, every bit of sorrow that you had will be wiped away. Every tear will be wiped away. And even something as hard to wrap our minds around as how could we say hallelujah at the destruction of the wicked, it's all going to make sense when we're face-to-face with Jesus. And we will give him glory forever and ever. Anguish now, but glory forever. But listen to this too. We're getting to the happy note now. Are you ready? Verse 23, we see that God's glory is going to be displayed in his grace for the elect. God's glory is displayed in His justice for the reprobate, but in His grace for the elect. It says in verse 23, in order to make known the riches of His glory for vessels of mercy which He has prepared beforehand for glory. That in order means that this is even fed into from the fact that not everyone is saved. But look at the glory of That God is going to get by pouring out, making known His riches of mercy toward us who believe, toward those that He has prepared beforehand for glory. The reason God saves us is not because we're good enough to be saved, it's not because we have something to offer Him, it's not because of the family that we were born into, it's not because of the church that we attended. It's not because we just were more sincere than somebody else or we were just better than somebody else. None of those things would be the case at all if God laid our hearts open. None of those things would show to be any reason for God to save us. But there is one reason that's above all why God would save us, and it is for his own glory. And you may even think to yourself, but there's other reasons that the Bible says It's because of his great love toward us, absolutely, to the end of his glory. All of the reasons that the Bible gives for why God saves sinners, they can be summed up and they come to the ultimate pinnacle of the point, glory to God alone. Glory to God alone. That's why he says in Isaiah 48, and I read it at the beginning, but I'm going to read it again. For my name's sake, I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise, I restrain it from you that I may not cut you off. For my own sake, for my own sake, I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. Or in Ephesians chapter one, as he describes how uh, how the triune God, as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, is for us in our salvation, it says it, it, that it is for His glory. The Father in Ephesians one five predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of will uh, of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace. You hear that? The Father predestined for the praise of His glorious grace, and then Ephesians one twelve, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. He's been talking there about the work of Christ to save us, and it says, "For it's for the praise of His glory." And then the Holy Spirit, who who comes and applies the work of Christ to us and seals us, it says that the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession, to the praise. Of his glory. Every bit of this is for the praise of his glory. And we won't have any doubt about that at all when we're standing face to face with Christ. We won't have any doubt that maybe God saved me because I was just the kind of person who would blank. No, no. It's to the praise of his glory alone. And then at the very end of what we're going to look at, and we're, we're going to, we're actually going to start with verse 24 next week, but I just want to, I want to look at the first phrase of verse 24 to wrap us up today. Even us whom he has called. Even us whom he has called. Guys, that, th- that wording kind of brings us back down from the mind of God in heaven to what's going on here right now. All right, we, God has lifted us up to think about some incomprehensible things, but here's what it looks like on the ground. Us whom he has called. What that looks like is turning to Jesus in repentance and in faith. It looks like being born again. And the way that God handles that is in God's hands, but the call to us is turned to him. And believe. What he's going to say in the very next chapter in Romans 10, verses 12 through 13, he says, This is what it looks like when God calls someone. The same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Do you know what it looks like to be called of God? It looks like you opening your mouth to call on God, to call on the name of the Lord to be saved. And if that's the case, then that is showing God has made you a vessel of mercy prepared beforehand for glory. Praise God. Call on the name of the Lord. I just have to say, I just want to wrap this up with the way that this whole section is going to wrap up because we just can't wrap our minds around it. There's so many ways that I just want to pause and say, "Well, well, okay, here's the really, really super practical thing to come out of this today. And in some ways it's hard to do that because God has just like taken our brains and exploded them everywhere this morning. But that's on purpose because part of what God is doing here is He just wants to show us we need to be humbled. We need to know that we are low. We need to know that He is high, that our thoughts are not His thoughts. So here's where we're going to come to when we get to the end of this section of Romans, Romans eleven thirty three through 36 Father, thank you for being the God to whom is glory forever. Lord, you've told us so many things in the Scriptures that are your your perfect law, your commands, your ways to, to go about our lives in wisdom as opposed to foolishness. But Lord, you've also told us things like this that are just simply about you and your eternal purposes and your glory, and I pray that you give us the grace to know these things to believe these things, not to answer back to you, but to accept what the Scripture says, even as we try to wrap our minds around them. And ultimately, in all these things, to love you and to give you glory. Lord, I thank you that it's from you and through you and to you that are all things, and I pray that you would be glorified in everything. Father, I pray that where you're still giving mercy, In terms of of your patience right now to those who don't know you, I pray that you would save people, and I pray that you'd open hearts even right now to call them, to give them mercy as vessels of mercy, and I pray that you would give us broken hearts, anguish and sorrow, as Paul said, and mercy and compassion toward the lost. Lord, we want them to receive the same salvation that we've received, and so I pray that you'd open our mouths to tell the gospel while there is still time, while you're still showing your patience, But God, I pray also that you'd give us the grace to rest secure in the eternal assurance of hope, knowing that every tear will be wiped away and that we will say hallelujah about all things that you've done forever and ever. Help us to do that now to tell you hallelujah. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.